not Mike Sag, um, who generally is here, but uh, Jessica Merlin, who's an assistant professor of medicine, um, is going to discuss a topic we've not discussed here, at least in my memory, and that is chronic pain in patients with HIV, what the clinicians need to know. Jessica? Good morning, everyone. It is true I'm not Mike Sag, but he's my mentor, so I will say hello to him for all of you. Um, so I run a chronic pain clinic down at UAB that's embedded within our HIV clinic. That's the perspective that I'm coming from with this. I have no disclosures. So the objectives of this presentation are going to be to recognize chronic pain as a serious chronic illness associated with, an, with important health consequences. Identify what is known about chronic pain in HIV-infected patients, and then describe a clinical approach to the evaluation and management of HIV-infected patients with chronic pain. So the outline for this presentation is going to talk about what is chronic pain, what we know about chronic pain in HIV, and then I'm going to present to you a clinical approach. So we'll talk about the evaluation, communication with patients about their chronic pain, and then management of chronic pain. I'm going to start off with a case, somebody that you may know. So 55-year-old male with HIV on tenofovir, FTC, and efavirenz, CD4 count of 490, viral load less than 20, so doing pretty well, some comorbidities, hypertension, gout, hyperlipidemia, and a history of cocaine use in his 20s, so a long time ago for him. Um, at the end of your 15-minute encounter, as you're shaking his hand and walking out the door, he mentions he has had low back pain for the past six months and asks if you can prescribe him hydrocodone acetaminophen. So what do you do? Sounds like some of you may have experienced this before. So do you prescribe hydrocodone acetaminophen, number 90 per month for, with refills and arranged follow-up in a year? Inform him that you do not prescribe opioids to patients with a history of addiction and refer him to the local pain clinic if, you're, if you have one. Um, tell him that you will need an MRI to determine if he has pain and depending on the results, you will consider an opioid or perform a history and physical exam, consider whether additional workup is needed and discuss pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic management options. So let's start the clock. Right, so good, so most of you got this right. Let's go through these responses. So the first one, certainly you need to work up this patient's pain, but in addition, um, guidelines recommend that you follow patients about every three months who have chronic pain on chronic opioid therapy, so you wouldn't wanna um, throw him out there for a year and not see him. Um, inform him that you do not prescribe opioids to patients with a history of addiction. Actually, patients with a history of addiction can safely be prescribed opioids. It's even possible to safely prescribe opioids to patients with active addiction the appropriate monitoring. We'll talk about risks and benefits of opioids a little bit later. Um, MRIs don't tell us whether or not patients have pain, although I do see some providers using them for this reason, and so you shouldn't use that as your litmus test of whether the patient should be prescribed an opioid. Of course, this last answer is correct, and we'll be talking about that a lot today. So what is chronic pain? So sometimes chronic pain is as easy to understand as this cartoon might suggest, um, and other times it's a little bit more complicated, which is, I think, why I'm here today talking to you about this. So um, we've all had acute pain, you know, toothache, broken bone, post-operative pain. That's new pain that lasts for less than three months and goes away. Chronic pain is something different altogether, so it's pain that persists for at least three to six months, depending on the definition you're looking at, beyond the period of normal tissue healing. And just to put us all on the same page, what I'm talking about here are things like chronic low back pain, other musculoskeletal pain syndromes, so shoulder pain, knee pain. Um, some people have chronic widespread pain, they may have pain in 
patient um, fibromyalgia, peripheral neuropathy. So why do some people develop chronic pain? Why does this happen? There's a lot of basic science literature on this. I'm going to try to distill it down into just a few concepts. So there's this concept of peripheral sensitization whereby people have inflammation in the periphery, um, but it sort of um, hypersensitizes their local receptors so that they may experience pain to non-painful stimuli. And an example of that is somebody with rheumatoid arthritis. So they have lots of inflammation in the periphery, but even when they don't have an active flare of disease, they may have pain there. They may have pain that extends beyond the joints affected by that. Um, there's another principle called central sensitization, and that's a situation whereby even though there may be little to no inflammation going on in the periphery, the brain is getting a strong signal saying pain. Um, and the most common example of this is fibromyalgia, where there really is no inflammation in the periphery, but still the patient is experiencing severe pain. Um, and so that pathway whereby central sensitization occurs is also modulated by mood disorders and addiction. And so that's often the reason that's given for the common co-occurrence between pain, mood disorders, and addiction. Now, certainly not everybody with pain has a mood disorder, not everybody with pain has addiction, but they do commonly co-occur. Um, and certainly some patients have ongoing inflammation. I've already given the example of rheumatoid arthritis, certainly peripheral neuropathy, and HIV is an example of this. However, um, these um, peripheral sensitization and central sensitization can also happen even when there's ongoing inflammation. So, you know, chronic pain is something that um, can be very challenging for providers to manage. And I put this slide up here to remind all of us how challenging this is for patients. So chronic pain is an extremely impairing condition. And it really impairs every aspect of patients' lives. So um, from functional activities, so being able to sleep, work, leisure activities, having energy, social consequences, people can have a difficult time having close personal relationships. Um, oftentimes people aren't working um, because of their chronic pain, and that can have severe socioeconomic consequences. And then certainly emotional functioning, chronic pain can lead to mood disorders, and certainly mood disorders can exacerbate chronic pain. And so um, you know, the Institute of Medicine wrote a great report about two years ago called Relieving Pain in America, where in recognition of all of these things, really described chronic pain as a chronic condition in and of itself, and I encourage you to think of it that way, um, and really a national public health crisis. So let's talk a little bit about chronic pain and HIV. There's not a ton of literature in this area, um, but I'll tell you about what what there is. Um, so the prevalence of chronic pain in the current treatment era, um, the prevalence estimates range from 39 to 85%. And 85% actually comes from a UCSF cohort um, that, called the REACH cohort that recruits predominantly patients from soup kitchens and homeless shelters with a high prevalence of psychiatric and substance abuse comorbidities. Um, but these numbers, even at the low end, are higher than for the general population. Even though there have been no directly comparative studies, it seems like chronic pain is way more common in HIV than the general population. Just like in the general population, often but not always coexists with mood disorders and addiction. Um, typically musculoskeletal, so certainly neuropathic pain is important. We look, but also musculoskeletal pain prevails. So we looked at the last 150 patients that saw us in our chronic pain clinic and found that about 10% had neuropathy and 20% had low back pain. The rest had a variety of regional musculoskeletal pain syndromes. So shoulder pain, knee pain, chronic widespread pain, fibromyalgia, et cetera. Um, and it can be associated with key outcomes. So um, we found that pain is associated with up to 10 times greater odds of impaired function. You hear me say function over and over. That's the mantra in chronic pain. Pain really impairs function, and that's a goal of therapy. Um, and also, um, chronic pain in some patients with HIV may actually increase their likelihood to no-show to clinic, and chronic pain in patients with HIV and addiction may actually be protective against no-show. So those are the patients who may be coming in to see you more often in clinic. Um,
um, and can be very challenging for HIV providers. Most HIV providers have not received directed um, instruction or training in how to take care of patients with chronic pain, may feel unprepared to deal with um, consequences of opioid addiction, things like that. So hopefully this yes, this projects well. So, um, so why is this? Why do patients with HIV have chronic pain? So certainly we know that HIV infection itself and antiretroviral, old antiretroviral therapies could lead to peripheral neuropathy. Certainly there can be painful sequelae of opportunistic infections that we see less frequently um, and treatment of opportunistic infections. But I've just told you that we're seeing a lot of musculoskeletal pain. So why is that? So nobody really knows the answer to this, um, but there are two hypotheses. One is that even in the context of suppressed viral load, people with HIV still have uncontrolled inflammation, and maybe that's somehow contributing to pain. That's not been tested. It's actually been tested in hepatitis C and not borne out to be the case. Um, and the other hypothesis is that chronic pain, as we've said, is at the nexus of mood disorders and addiction and also of medical comorbidities. Chronic pain is also at the nexus of mood disorders, addiction, and um, medical comorbidities. So it's possible that this is just a supersaturated population of patients with chronic pain. All right. So now we're going to turn to a clinical approach and start with evaluation. So I know that my patient's pain is real because the patient says so, the patient's partner says so, the MRI says so, I have no idea, how should I know? All right. Start the timer. All right. Oh, <laughs> all right. You took the bait. Um, so, so basically, the point of this is to remind all of you that, you know, unfortunately, there's no biomarker for chronic pain. There's no smoking gun oftentimes in imaging studies. So if the patient tells you they have pain, they have pain. Are there some people who are malingerers and are telling you they have pain and they really don't? Sure, that happens in any aspect of internal medicine when we see patients, but you cannot start off by assuming that. That's a very rare case. So typically, it's because the patient says so. And sometimes we may feel like I have no idea how do I know. But if they tell you they have pain, they have pain. That doesn't mean that you need to treat them in a certain way in terms of opioids, but um, we'll go into that. So this is not how you should evaluate your patient's pain by telling them it will be a level three and then pulling the tooth. All right, so um, chronic pain history. So of course, you're going to do the history that you learned during your training in terms of pain. But I'm going to give you some pearls about things that I think are particularly important. So impact of pain on function. Function is key. Um, mood and sleep. We use a structured tool for this called the brief pain inventory and then follow up with additional questions. Um, I ask people in this way. So I'll say, for example, some people report that pain affects mood such that when their pain is worse, it makes their mood worse. And sometimes when their mood is worse, their pain can be worse. Is that ever something that's happened to you? And the vast majority of people will say yes. So people with chronic pain really recognize these things more than you would imagine in themselves. And so it's great to make that connection because then when you start talking to them about treating their mood disorder or treating them with an antidepressant for their pain, they'll understand why. Um, so I also ask about employment and disability history. And I specifically ask people, how do you spend your day? Because even people who are on disabilities, our patients sometimes are. Um, can do 40 structured hours of activity a week. They can be running around after their kids. They can be caring for an ailing parent. Um, they can be volunteering. And so it's a very different person that says, I lay in bed all day to try to avoid my pain than somebody who says, I have a lot of pain, but I have to push through it for my kids and for my mom and for all the other people who are counting on me. Um, I always ask them what they did before they had chronic pain um, professionally. Um, and oftentimes people talk about that very fondly and want to return to um, at least some level of their uh, prior function. Um, and I asked them what they would like to be doing. A 
key element of this is setting functional goals with people, um, trying to encourage them to, to achieve those functional goals. Because psychiatric and addiction, psychiatric, psychiatric disorders and addiction are so common, it's very important to ask about it or else you will miss it. Um, we use structured tools for that as well. Um, and during the interview, noting pain behaviors, if you see them, those are dysfunctional behaviors and you want to try to make sure that um, you don't encourage them. So that's people sort of rocking back and forth, moaning and pain, things like that. That does not help somebody do 40 structured hours of activity a week. So some known risk factors for disability. When I see these things, I like to address them with people. Um, often people will volunteer them. Fear avoidance means avoiding physical activity so that people are not in pain. Um, that's also um, uh, not helpful. Um, catastrophizing, so people who say, I have chronic low back pain, therefore I'm certain I will be in a wheelchair in a couple of years. Um, depression and anxiety, if those are there, you treat them. It's very important. The pain will not get better unless their mood disorders get better. Decreased function, high initial pain levels. This is the person that comes to your clinic in 10 out of 10 pain. Um, increased age, uh, poor general health status and compensation dependency. So in terms of trying to determine the etiology of pain, you want to try to put it into one of these buckets. And so um, it's beyond the scope of this discussion to really go into detail about how to evaluate every different type of pain that comes at you, but using your good history and physical exam skills, trying to understand where the pain fits, that's going to help you determine what type of evaluation you want to perform. Um, but you should know that about half of patients are not going to fall into one of these buckets neatly, even after you've done the evaluation. That doesn't mean they don't have pain. That doesn't mean they should be told they have some kind of mysterious pain syndrome that nobody's ever seen before. It's actually very common. Um, and I often tell my patients that directly. Um, so in terms of diagnostic testing along these same lines, evidence-based judicious use is best. And patients may not have a radiographically identifiable cause. So what I recommend is that you follow the guidelines for whatever syndrome the patient has. For example, if a patient has chronic low back pain, you can Google chronic low back pain guidelines. There's an excellent annals article that will tell you exactly when to order what studies. But if you don't find anything, that doesn't mean that you should repeat the studies, do you know, bone scans and all kinds of other things. If you don't see something, that's actually very common. Um, and I, again, I talk to my patients directly about this, that it's hard for providers. First of all, you know, we like to see that smoking gun. That's satisfying for us. But you know, it's not that we don't believe them. Just because it's not there on an imaging study doesn't mean they don't have pain. And that we still have things, we have lots of things we can do to help treat their pain. So communication about chronic pain, this is something that's often really challenging, so I wanted to address it directly. So another question, so you should routinely tell patients with chronic pain that if they break their contract, you will get angry and fire them from your practice. Um, the goal of pain management is improvement in physical function rather than being pain-free. Their pain is mostly psychological, and if they go to their initial visit with their pain doctor, they will get opioids. Give you a moment. Okay, good. So let's go through these each. Um, so um, many of you may use opioid treatment agreements in your practice. I can go into that in more detail in the Q&A if you like. Um, but when people, <coughs> excuse me, when people do things that you consider high risk that you've asked them not to do during, in this opioid treatment agreement, it's important to consider the differential diagnosis of that behavior. So somebody's going up on their opioids um, without telling you first. Um, you want to know, is that an addiction issue? Is that an issue with regards to uncontrolled depression? Is that an issue that they misunderstood how to take the medications or something else? Talk to them about that. And then decide whether opioids are right for them. Um, 
because for some patients, opioids may have more risks than benefits. Um, and certainly, as we've said, the goal of pain management is improvement in physical function. Many people do not achieve excellent pain control, unfortunately, but really the goal is to improve their physical function. You certainly don't want to tell patients that their pain is in their head. It's important to make that mind-body connection, but you don't want to imply that you don't believe them. Um, and um, since I'm that pain doctor, I'd really appreciate if you didn't tell them they would get opioids when they come to see me because opioids are not usually what I give patients. It's one part of my toolkit, but it's not the whole toolkit, um, which we'll talk about more. So communicating about chronic pain is not easy because, so patients come with baggage. So just like HIV, chronic pain is a highly stigmatized so um, patients may have had experiences with providers where they are told that their pain is all in their head, they can't find it in an imaging study, they're just trying to get drugs, um, or they've just had undertreated pain for a long time and are just desperate for help, and so they come with that. But of course, we're human beings too, and we may come to the table with baggage. So we may have had frustrating interactions with patients with chronic pain in the past. Um, you know, these are patients who often have uncontrolled mood disorders, may have addiction, and so that may color how they communicate with us. Hard um, for us as well. During the last 10 years, it's been drummed into our heads that pain is the fifth vital sign, pain is an emergency, and I didn't put it on here, but pain requires an opioid. That's true for acute pain, so that's great if you're having post-operative pain. Um, you know, that's great if you've broken a bone, but for chronic pain, it doesn't work that way. That would be like saying your patient's hemoglobin A1C should be less than seven the day that you meet them. It's a long-term process that you're going to be working with the patient on. Um, so medications come with risk, so oftentimes opioids are used, and those are medications that, are, that have risk. Again, patients may have active psychiatric illness and addiction that colors the way they communicate with you. And frankly, sometimes patients' behaviors may evoke severe negative countertransference in you. So we're all human beings, and so, you know, again, you know, lots of psychiatric illness and addiction, but also a high rate of comorbid personality disorders, and so with chronic pain. And so, you know, if you're experiencing negative countertransference when you're talking to somebody, if they're pushing your buttons, um, it's important to recognize they're probably not doing this intentionally. This is part of the package. Um, and try to not let it get in the middle of the interaction if you can. So this is what I tried to discuss when I first see a patient with chronic pain. Um, and sometimes if the patient is already on opioids or the, in the less common case that I'm starting opioids, I do this in the context of a treatment agreement. But I talk about what is chronic pain, and I talk to them about actually peripheral sensitization and central sensitization without using those words. I try to demystify chronic pain a little bit for them. And I talk about patients in partnership and collaboration. I say, you know, I would love it if I could give you a pill that would make this go away today, but you didn't get here overnight. You're not going to get out of this overnight. But I want to work with you to help you. It's going to take hard work on both of our parts. I'm willing to do that, are you? Um, and um, I talk about pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic management strategies, which we'll get to in a second. Um, I talk about that mind-body connection, and I drum into them functional goals. And I, you know, I try to get a sense from them of what those might be. Um, for somebody who's severely physically impaired, it might just be walking to the mailbox twice a week to start off with. I'm not talking about anything big, but it's important to make movement forward on that. Okay, so approach to management of chronic pain. So just like with diagnostic testing here, um, judicious use is best. So remember, first, do no harm. These are patients that are at very high risk for being overly instrumented, overly proceduralized, given lots of medications that they may not need. So um, try not to do that. Set concrete goals and timelines and be ready to discontinue things that don't work. So I'll use the example of opioids. If you start somebody 
on an opioid, say, I'm going to start you with this dose. You may go up a little bit, titrate it a little bit. But if it doesn't work after two months, we'll stop it. If it's not helping you achieve your functional goals, we'll stop it. Um, and if possible, try to treat their psychiatric symptoms if they have them first. Even though there are no sort of randomized controlled trials that prove this to be the case, there are lots of studies that suggest that psychiatric symptoms make pain worse. And so it stands to reason that if you treat those things first, patients' pain may get better. And I'll tell you from my practice that is absolutely true. Uh, let's see. Okay. So evidence-based non-opioid pharmacologic therapies. So these are the typical things. So acetaminophen really has been studied mostly in the context of osteoarthritis. Um, less than three grams a day is the new recommendation for maximum dose. And consider relative contraindications like hepatitis C, alcohol use, cirrhosis. Beware of co-formulations. There are lots of co-formulations of opioids and acetaminophen out there. Patients are often taking acetaminophen over the counter. So just be careful that they don't accidentally overdose themselves. Um, NSAIDs, um, so this has been studied mostly in the context of chronic low back pain. And remember that cardiovascular GI and renal risk with these medications is a class effect. And so I try to avoid putting people on these things chronically if I at all can because it it's not, does not have a negligible risk, really. Um, muscle relaxants and benzodiazepines have never been studied for use in chronic pain. So this is fine for the person who has a migraine, fine for the person who goes to the ED with you know, back spasm for a couple of days. But the way that these medications work is actually through their sedating effect. And so you don't want your patients to be chronically sedated. You want them to be functional. And so I would avoid using these if you can. Um, and then for specific indications, anticonvulsants for neuropathic pain, antidepressants, and then certainly topicals for the specific indications that I listed there. So this reminds me to talk to you about opioids. All right. So it may surprise you to know that the evidence for long-term use of opioids in chronic non-malignant pain is really lacking. And so it's shocking because we use, this, use these medications all the time. But there's a great Cochrane review that I've cited here that suggests that there's really insufficient evidence to show any functional improvement. And so that's important to keep in mind. In addition, opioids have risks. So one of these risks is for doses greater than 100 to 200 milligram equivalents of morphine per day, there's an increased risk of mortality. Um, and I've listed the citations there. We know of other risks of opioids, certainly iatrogenic addiction, which is more common in people who have a history of addiction, um, also been associated with cardiovascular risk, hypogonadism, falls. Um, and you know, in this country, we have an epidemic of opioid prescribing and an epidemic of opioid overdose deaths. And you know, oftentimes people think about methadone as a safer opioid. So I just put this on there that um, most of overdose deaths right now in the U.S. are due to methadone, um, probably because of shifting prescriber practices towards methadone, unpredictable half-life, et cetera. Um, often co-prescribed with benzodiazepines. So how do you decide whether the patient sitting in front of you should be started on opioids? So. Really what this comes down to is assessing the risk-benefit ratio of opioids. There's an excellent opioid guideline paper that I've cited here. And what it says is that clinicians may consider a trial of chronic opioid therapy if chronic non-malignant pain is severe, pain is having an adverse impact on function or quality of life, and benefits outweigh harms. So essentially, a judgment call. So if you do decide to prescribe opioids, you should avoid doses greater than 100 to 200 milligram equivalents of morphine a day. Avoid co-prescription with benzos when possible. Start at a low dose, regardless of whether the patient tells you they have a high tolerance. Taper if functional goals are not met or all of the above. OK, good. 
So that's right, and we're going to go through these, in a, and we've gone through some of these already, but um, we'll go through these in a little more detail in a second. So a couple other things to consider. So side effects, right? So opioids typically nausea, sedation, those typically go away in the first few days. Don't forget the constipation never goes away, so ask patients about that. There's no evidence to suggest that long-acting versus short-acting um, is safer or better, and so just use your own judgment. Um, do what you think is prudent. Avoid indefinite dose escalation. So if it doesn't work at 20 milligrams BID, it's probably not going to work at 200 milligrams BID, but the risk increases. Um, you want to consider using opioid treatment agreements in urine drug screens. Um, use treatment agreements like informed consent. Um, I talk to patients about what chronic pain is in the context of a treatment agreement and about the risks and benefits, and I talk to them about ways that they should safely take opioids. So I talk to them about how they should not use multiple providers, they should not increase their dose without, without talking to me about it first, um, and I do urine drug screens routinely, um, and monitoring needs may vary depending on the individual patient. And know how you're going to deal with issues that come up. So if a patient does have opioid misuse, again, like I said before, you want to consider what the differential diagnosis of that is. If a patient tells you that they have a, they're having an issue with illicit drug use or they show up positive on the urine drug screen, know how you're going to deal with it. You're going to talk to them about whether they have an issue with addiction. You can involve appropriate addiction providers if you need to. And you can decide whether opioids are right for them. It doesn't mean that you're not going to take care of them, you're not going to take care of their chronic pain, but it could be a situation where the risk-benefit ratio of the opioids has just shifted and now you need to think about either monitoring them extremely closely or weaning them from the opioids. Okay, so other evidence-based non-pharmacologic approaches. So psychological approaches, so cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing have both been studied in the context of chronic pain. I use elements of those in my practice. I also am very fortunate to work with two excellent psychiatric nurse practitioners and a great addiction counselor. Um, and so we work together as a team, often evaluating patients together. Um, I also am very fortunate to have a physical therapist that works directly with me. I see patients with her in the clinic, but you can certainly refer out. Um, exercise, so exercise has been studied in the context of mood disorders and pain, and it helps with both. So, and again, I'm not talking about, and I tell patients this, I'm not telling you to go on the treadmill in the gym and run five miles, lift weights. I'm talking about very modest exercise goals, like walking around the block with your partner twice a week, and then you're going to see me in a month, and I want to hear about all the great things you did when you walked around the block. I want to hear about it. Um, interventional treatments, we have a great interventional pain group, and for certain indications, so you know, if you have somebody with radicular back pain that has a prolapsed disc, that can be useful for an epidural injection, complementary therapies if people have access to them, and then for very specific indications, surgery, so if somebody has avascular, severe avascular necrosis and severely functionally impaired by it, um, they could have a joint replacement. So um, I think I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to go through this briefly because there are lots of other venues for you to learn about peripheral neuropathy, and you've probably heard this before, but um, again, this is something that still exists in our population. Um, D-drugs are a lifetime effect, so we have people who have seen those in the past, um, and other medications, alcohol, diabetes, et cetera. Um, and so um, the pathogenesis of this, HIV itself, um, basically distal loss, peripheral neuropathy from that, so they get a distal sensory polyneuropathy. The diagnosis is clinical. You really don't need to do all the fancy tests unless you're, you know, the nerve conduction studies, unless you're really uncertain of the diagnosis, unless it's really unclear. Um, you should make sure that they don't have some other reason to have peripheral neuropathy in addition, and so those are tests listed there that kind of um, figure that out. And then these are, I've listed here things that are commonly used in treatment for peripheral neuropathy. Some of these have been studied directly in HIV, so for example, uh, gabapentin. Actually, they've all been studied 
peroxidative conception of opioids directly in HIV. Some have been shown to be efficacious in HIV and some have not, but for example, so gabapentin has been shown to be effective in HIV, so is high-dose capsaicin. Pregabalin has not, but um, because it's so similar to gabapentin and it's easier to dose and um, that sort of thing, we often use it. Um, and amitriptyline has been shown to be effective in other patient populations, specifically diabetes, even though it actually wasn't shown to be effective in HIV, we often use it. So key points here, so chronic pain is common in patients with HIV and causes substantial functional impairment. Function is key. Um, you know the patient has pain if they say they have pain. We have a whole lot more to offer patients than opioids um, and pay attention to the psychiatric symptoms and treat them when, when present. And we do have a cases on the web through IAS USA, so if you want to practice some of what you may have heard today, you can go online and do it there. So. Now we'll go back to the, one of the questions, which most of you got right to begin with, so hopefully that won't be worse. <clears throat> good. All right. Yeah, good job. All right. Now I'll do another one. <laughs> Similar results, I hope. All right, very good. All right. Great. Thank you very much for your attention. I think that's all. Thank you very much. So I had a question about marijuana. Um, I mean, there are some studies of marijuana and HIV and chronic pain. I think the, you know, um, the issue is that marijuana has mostly been studied in the context of its specific compounds, so THC, for example. And so telling people to smoke marijuana, you're getting about 250 different compounds. But, um, you know, so if it seems to be helping somebody, I you know, I don't necessarily discourage it, but um, I don't necessarily encourage it either for that reason. Um, let's see. Oh, this one. oh, acupuncture. That's a great question. So um, there is evidence about acupuncture and chronic pain. There was actually just a meta-analysis um, in the past year about this. And so basically it looks like um, acupuncture and sham acupuncture work about the same in chronic pain, leading people to but better than placebo, leading people to believe that it's mostly a placebo effect. So, um, which is fine with me. I mean, you know, if, if I know that I'm recommending something to somebody and the mechanism of action is probably mostly placebo, but it works better than nothing in a condition where um, it's often very hard to treat, I'm perfectly fine with that. If people have access to it, which is usually the issue, um, if people have access to it, I encourage them to do it for sure. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. Yes, it is. So it says, um, diloxetine is approved for several chronic pain conditions. When would you consider using it? This is great. So, um, so diloxetine is um, specifically approved for fibromyalgia, and I use it, you know, in patients who have fibromyalgia, I, I use that first if I at all can. And then in patients who have depression who have chronic pain, I reach for it first. That's my preference. I mean, there's not a lot of good data necessarily to support that, but 
there is data about duloxetine and fibromyalgia and chronic pain, and so I, I prefer that particular antidepressant. But the truth is, I mean, if somebody ha is severely depressed and they have chronic pain, if you treat their depression well with whatever agent, they will do a lot better. And so if somebody says, look, I was on Lexapro five years ago and it worked great, can I just go back to that? I'll say absolutely, yes, because I know if your depression gets better, your pain will get better. Um, Oh yeah, this is great. So in patients with anxiety and pain, should benzos still be avoided? So you know, the, the best treatment for anxiety is actually SSRIs and therapy, and so I start with that. Um, usually patients come to me already on benzos, but if they're not, I try not to start them, especially if the patient is on opioids. That combination can be deadly um, if patients don't use it correctly. I do, I do try to avoid benzos. There's certain situations, I mean, if you're just starting somebody on an SSRI and you want to give them you know, a month of benzos until the SSRI really starts to kick in, you can do that. But again, remember, time-limited trial. So tell the person, either I'm just going to use this for a little while, we'll see how it goes. If it doesn't work, I'm going to stop. Or I'm just using this for a brief period of time until other things kick in, and then we are going to stop it and then follow through with that plan. Um, do you need to order? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Specific... Yeah, so the question is, do you need to order a specific urine drug screen for the use of um, hydrocodone acetaminophen? Um, yeah, so it, it depends. So you should become familiar with the urine drug screen at your institution is what I recommend to people. Typically, the screening urine drug screens that most hospital-based or clinic-based laboratories use or point-of-care urine drug screens, um, hydrocodone will show up as an opioid, um, but you should double check that. So read the package insert. We just went through this process at UAB. I've just read about a thousand package inserts for a variety of different companies, and you just want to make sure. Um, but it's certainly not the case for oxycodone. That often has to be ordered as a special test. Other thing to remember is if, if you don't get what you're expecting on the urine drug screen, so if the urine drug screen is negative for an opioid that somebody is supposed to be taking or positive for an illicit, Remember that that has a differential diagnosis, too. So these tests are not perfect. If it's negative for the opioid, it might be that it's below the level of detection. You need to order a follow-up test. And also, these tests are not perfectly sensitive. So you just need to order a confirmatory GCMS test, just like getting a Western blot um, for HIV. So it's the same sort of thing. So just know and know your lab well, know your test characteristics well. I think we got pain became the fifth vital sign in the late 80s. Yep. OK. <laughs> OK. I, sorry, I can't read the rest of this. Um, yeah, I see. Right. So I think the point this person is making is that um, that this really, over the last like 15 years, has really become a national issue of sort of heightened importance, where people really, you know, the, one of the national pain societies many years ago tried to make this into a very important issue and. Drug, uh, some pharmaceutical companies got behind it and started marketing medications as being safer for addiction, and then there became sort of a prescription opioid epidemic around this. And so, um, you know, it's really important to prescribe opioids responsibly so as not to contribute to that epidemic, but also using opioids to treat chronic pain when needed. I think I got most of these. Is that good? Is that all right? Should I? I think I got most of these. All right, good. Well, thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it. <laughs>